0: think there is sometimes an assumption that you know having an environment that is open enough to let everyone speak if they so choose is enough but I, i don't think that's true letting everyone speak is not the same as making everyone heard if you do that you'll find that people get much more involved they take a lot more ownership and suddenly you'll have an environment where people feel personally responsible for the for the success team and you get to this concept of empowered product teams versus delivery teams, you know, having everybody really bought in and pulling in the right direction. I think something as simple as asking somebody else to express their opinion rather than waiting for them to do it can really make a huge difference there.
1: Welcome to Quantum Black Voices, A series of interviews with the talented and diverse people building products to capture the transformative power of advanced analytics, machine learning and artificial intelligence. Today we meet Thomas Essel. We talk about his experience working in startup, agency and big tech environments as a designer and the pros and cons of each. We talk about the importance of inner sourcing and how to scale technical assets like code as a reusable knowledge resource. Thomas also explains the importance of end users when creating AI solutions and how an empathy for their role and needs is essential to ensuring the adoption of advanced analytics within an organization. To learn more about Quantum Black and McKinsey Company, head to www.quantumblack.com. Enjoy the episode.
0: Why don't we start with an introduction? Okay. Hello, I'm Thomas Essel, and I'm a product designer at Quantum Black Labs. Nice to meet you, Thomas. Can you tell
1: us a little bit about your background before you join Quantum Black? Sure.
0: So way back, uh, I actually had another career. It had nothing to do with design. I had a brief career in mechanical engineering, which I consider a, a fairly creative discipline. But I was looking to do something that was a little bit more creative in the classical sense. And so I wanted to pivot my career in a way that wouldn't sort of obliterate my career path so far and, you know, wouldn't (laughs) um, render all of that education and practice redundant. So I first went into the design of physical products and industrial goods uh, or industrial design, as the degree was called. And during my undergrad, I, I kind of challenged myself to find really new problem solving methods and the thing that I kind of like settled on for my own personal development was to flip the way I approach problems from the mindset of an engineer to the mindset of a sort of I guess like creative designer for lack of a better word and what I mean with that is as an engineer and and, you know back then I would address a brief and the given problem and I would look at what a All the things that were possible uh, in in that domain or with that technology and then choose the best option but as a designer i learned that turning that around widens your solution space if you start by asking what would be the best possible ideal solution that we could possibly dream up and how can we use today's technologies to approximate that experience then you'll get a much more interesting and, and greater solution space and much more innovative solutions coming out of it. And that's basically what ever since starting to study design and, and until today, I, I keep challenging myself to do is, you know, in a in a farcical way, people would say, think, uh, thinking outside of the box, right? Like, I guess that's the sort of cliche it's always wrapped up in, but to me, it's really that flipping of um, what is what is the problem? What is the solution? At the time also, this may seem unrelated but my mother is a psychotherapist and at the time she was writing a book and she couldn't type um, on a computer so she wrote her entire book by hand and she asked me to type it up with her in, in sort of collaboration and her book was on basically psychology of imagery she was approaching it from a diagnostic sense but it's uh, what, I can't remember what it is it's called, Catatum Imaginative Therapy is what, what the term is if you want to look it up. Right. But basically it's about how sort of people's emotional subconscious landscape relates to uh, images and how you can use images to bring that forward. And I think that's probably one of the key moments where I started to think about the relationship between how things look and how we engage with things and how that relates to people's emotions and desires and so forth
1: and you felt like design was a was a medium for you to go and explore those things
0: very much so yeah I think it wasn't that deliberate to begin with but looking back I can see that that was basically what I started to be more interested in I I think with many disciplines when you start out you first get really interested in all the things that you can do, right? I think if you're a developer or a, you know, mechanical engineer or a designer, you, you look at all the tools and you get all the gear and you're excited about, you know, all the possible creative sort of expressions that, that it offers to you. But more and more, I was kind of asking myself, like, to what end? And more often than not, the answer was something that related to sort of human and emotional uh, aspect of, of sort of, interaction with things. Criking, thanks mum. <laughs> exactly, very much so. Um, I do owe my engineering degree to my dad but that's a different story. <laughs> um, so then I, I kind of tried to stretch that more and more and uh, I did an exchange semester at what is more what you might think of more of as the sort of classic Uh, art and design course where I would do very experimental things like throwing a canvas into a river and seeing what sticks or wow
1: (laughs) that's a that's probably a big pivot from the curriculum for an engineer
0: (laughs) yeah uh, definitely but it was you know it was great exploration and that's that's how I kind of fell in love with with the concept of experimentation as well with saying okay let's go into a problem space do things that are vaguely related to that but not necessarily have a fixed outcome in mind and that would become very important later on in my life and based on that exchange semester I kind of uh, I should say I'm from Austria originally and that exchange semester was in Bristol and then I kind of fell in love with the with the British education system believe it or not
1: I thought you were going to uh, say the British uh, there that would have been a been an odd statement but yes the British <laughs> educational system makes a lot of sense
0: that too of course and yeah, I really wanted to to study uh, in the UK, and the, the course I settled on was something called Innovation Design Engineering. It was a joint course, a double master's degree between the Royal College of Art and Imperial College London. And what was really formative there was that this was fundamentally cross-disciplinary. This is really teaching me about the potential of cross-disciplinary teams working together. And not going to say too much about that but to just explain that a little bit the way the course is made up is that the student body they 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 get a third of sort of traditional designers or artists a third of what you might call technical people so like engineers uh, computer scientists and a third of other which might be molecular biologists or uh, theoretical physicists and then you're being set briefs in team context and, you know, solve this challenge. Like, how can technology improve the world that we live in um, and sort it out amongst all these disciplines?
1: Why, why, do you think, why do you think that was important to the course? Why do you think they thought coming together as a cross discipline team was the best way to uh, approach that problem?
0: I think because of that sort of old cliche problem, first of all, of if you, you know, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And in order to jump beyond that you you need people with different backgrounds and you know from diverse backgrounds both personally and professionally to to kind of see past that but also because our world is incredibly complex and if you really want to leverage technology to make an improvement you like there's there's no single person who understands enough to address these various problems in the right way like you have to collaborate at some point i think the the kind of mystique of the the renaissance person who would sort of internalize an entire library and and hold all knowledge in the world in their head um that that's just not possible anymore we and you know since we have so much more information we just have to collaborate Got you. and um yeah so then after that i came out very inspired but a but an incredible sort of generalist um could not possibly be hired anywhere except for a startup (laughs) and uh, that's that's what i did so i joined a a medical technology startup and i basically invented sort of empathy and ethnographic research for them and at the same time for myself and um, also had already made the transition more towards digital i was still doing physical design for their product and setting up supply chains and all that as you would do in a startup you do whatever is necessary but I was very much focusing on the on the empathy piece and on um, uh, also sort of researching behavior change because it was in the medical space. And again, the sort of psychology of things uh, and empathy in extracting that real sort of user insight was really fascinating to me. And um, yeah, I had a really great time there. That company actually ended up doing really, really well. They, they moved to uh, the US uh, to their new base in Silicon Valley and I wanted to stay here. So, I basically left without really knowing what to do next. I didn't just want to jump into the next kind of startup and I took a break to talk to as many graduates of of my of the courses that i'd done and and seeing where they ended up in and seeing if what they had been doing in the meantime since since we last spoke was something for me and I also did a lot of sort of like workshops and hackathons and coming out of one of those uh it transpired that. The, the sort of sphere of user experience design was, was where I was going to go.
1: Why is that? What, what, why is it, do you think, that you were attracted to, the, to, to that discipline?
0: So the, the workshop that I'm talking about was the Service Jam London. And what I really liked about it was thinking about the bigger system of things. I think too often we look at an individual problem or, you know, even a solution or product in isolation, and that is really reflective of reality. Most things exist in a complex system, and I really enjoy looking at that system, identifying where improvements can be made, and then developing targeted solutions to solve problems there in order to, in essence, unblock the entire system through targeted um, local interventions uh, in that sort of process map. Uh, so. It was something that would allow me to look at the big picture and and learn a lot of any sort of industry or problem that I was having to do with while at the same time diving deep into a an narrow space and developing solutions that would also be very tangible and I could Im- see immediate uh, benefits from you know developing digital products is incredibly fast and from idea to getting feedback from people that is very quick I find that very, very gratifying, that sort of immediate feedback and that iterative loop of improvement that that triggers. So it was it was basically that. I think I still didn't really want to specialize to a very great degree at that point, and this was something that would allow me to learn more about different industries, about different technologies with every project, um, but at the same time go, go high level and go deep on those things.
1: Cool. So you came out of Service Jam... You decided that this was where you wanted to focus.
0: What happened after the startup? I So one of the women organizing Service gem uh, Veronica Najib, took me on as a, as a freelance UX designer uh, at the bio agency. And I was very lucky that that happened and I'm very grateful. Also because my very first project was a redesign of the mobile app for British Airways, which was very kind of prestigious um, from the outset, but also incredibly interesting in terms of subject matter is something that I could really easily relate to. Um, It was something that would happen across several technologies. And it wasn't just a sort of redesign or overhaul they'd asked for a digital transformation. And there were a lot of really futuristic ideas in there, some of which um, ended up making it it to a pilot or even sort of uh, full-scale deployment. So in a very short period of time, I should say as well. So that was a, an incredibly lucky entrance uh, to working professionally in that space. And uh, yeah, at that point, I'd worked at startups and I'd worked at one agency. And I kind of went on a several year plan of I'm going to explore different industries and in different contexts of working to figure out which one suits me best. So I... Tour, toured in a way yeah i can say um sort of london agencies um i worked for uh google at some point um and then uh finally qb so i'd kind of try to to get everything in the sort of startup agency big tech uh consulting product um and uh yeah obviously i'm here now so <laughs> uh settled on the letter
1: and before we ask the question about whether qb has been the perfect fit for you or not which is obviously part of your tour let's hope it's the end of your tour uh (laughs) what just out of curiosity for anyone that's listening did you see big differences or did you see a preference across the the three different environments you described so there was startup big tech agency you know what were the things that attracted you most to, to to those areas or those environments
0: yeah sure um Massive differences. So startup, I loved obviously, you know, getting involved in, in, all the different kinds of disciplines and areas, um, I think to get a good understanding of your product and your service for any employee, it's great if you can get involved in so many different parts. And that was a great learning experience and the fast paced nature of it, the sort of feeling of doing something completely new, uh, the slight sense of audacity, really it's really inspiring the downside of it you know for most of it i was the only designer there and i was still relatively junior so i think at that point in time i i was kind of lacking the professional development opportunities that a larger group of designers or maybe a corporate environment would offer got you on the agency front i really loved the diversity of projects i mean you'd work in healthcare at one point and insurance and banking and various sort of personal applications are direct to consumer apps. And it's like, it really gives you a feeling of seeing a world of commerce come together. Um, and that really was crucial for learning, I think as well, because cross-pollination is something that's very important in design where you take something that works in one context really well, and that's been proven but it doesn't necessarily exist somewhere else and and you know that is something that lets you test whether you can transport things from one domain to another and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't but it's a it's a great tool to have and that is something I learned uh, in agency environments as well what I got frustrated with was the the short-paced nature and the detachment from delivery i think quite often in agencies you develop very inspiring visionary solutions but what comes out at the end, what reaches the the customer doesn't necessarily have much uh like with with what the team came up with why Why do you think that is I think it's because the setup fundamentally favors what you would kind of call waterfall, right? You get the brief from the client and you get the design from the design agency, and then the development agencies or partners they you know they do their thing in. Almost in isolation, they, those things are, are rarely, at least based on my experience, they were rarely kind of happening in parallel in a very collaborative way, and developers weren't necessarily supported with the contextual information that they would need to to develop something true to vision, and you know would just have to work with whatever they had, and you know before that, upstream designers would just have to make assumptions in terms of what may or may not be possible. And, you know, there are some, some places where that works better than others, but I think fundamentally it's because, you know, you've you've got these barriers between the various entities and it's not making for a sort of real-time collaborative environment that you would need to, to get that job done in, in a way that is true to Vision. Interesting. So what about big tech? I had a great time at Google. I have to say, really good culture, very, like... both in terms of human terms. And, you know, that's taught me a lot about product uh, design and delivery as well. I mean, there we, we really had, I mean, again, like what I should say about big tech is that everyone's experience is fundamentally different based on what team you're working with. I experienced some colleagues who worked on some teams, you know, who hadn't the best time in the world and, you know, and others did. It's entirely dependent on, What product do you work on and who do you work on it with? And it's, as so often, I think the people that you work with just really make the difference. And, you know, this is no exception. I was very lucky, I think. Um, I had a really great team. And what I loved about it fundamentally, of course, is is the scale. I think, you know, quite similarly, if you're lucky, you're working with a team that is very uh, up for experimentation, for testing new things, for pushing boundaries. And then you can... Test your ideas immediately with a small subset of the the customer population, and get validation at scale, feedback at scale. And if it works out, you know you deploy it to the entire world and have that feeling of you know really having made a difference.
1: Just on just on that point, why why do you think it's scale of user base that's so important to enabling things like experimentation, like you described?
0: Because in design. I always want to have a good balance between qualitative and quantitative insight, so being able to have one-to-one conversations with users fundamentally and at the same time seeing the assumptions that you're making validated at a larger scale. I think that's the final test to see if what you've dreamt up actually works or if it doesn't.
1: And that's trickier when you've got a smaller user base where you might not necessarily have enough people to be able to get that quantitative research done with.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, sometimes at the other end of the scale, again, it it gets very different. I think you, you can, of course, successfully design for for any size of of user base, but it it kind of works slightly differently. And if you know your organization is that way inclined to say, okay, here is here is a low risk experiment. You know, this thing could be fun. Let's test it with thirty thousand people. Um, at that, you know, it's it's just so easy. <laughs> Got you.
1: So big tech, agencies, startups, tick, tick, tick. What was it that
0: attracted you to Quantum Black? One of the things that I was actually really looking for at the time was deepening my understanding in the sort of AI and machine learning space. And that started with my experience at Google, where I was actually heavily involved in projects. Well, I guess every project there has some kind of AI component. But it really kind of opened my eyes to what wasn't wasn't possible, especially seeing that I was working on a, a lot of projects that were kind of looking five to eight years into the future. And so on a personal level, I wanted to get a sense of what AI could actually do um, and what is hype, you know, because at the time there were a lot of companies out there sort of promising the world uh, that they would deliver uh, through the powers of AI. And I wanted to be able to look at some of those applications and you know, sense check whether, whether that made sense or it didn't, also from, from that sort of personal perspective. My Google placement was in Munich and I wanted to come back to London. And I was, I was in London for a couple of weeks kind of exploring my opportunities to, to say like, where can I work in this space uh, here in a place that's very exciting? And then by chance, my uh, girlfriend at the time had a uh, brunch with uh, Jessica Fan who is a childhood friend of hers, but who you know as one of our product managers. And Jessica just said, like, you know, I'm, we're looking for a UX designer. And my girlfriend said, well, my boyfriend is one. Do you want to talk to him? And sure enough, uh, Jess set up a call and uh, taught me some of the things that, that QB was working on. And I, yeah, just got really excited about it. And, you know, as I went through the interview process, that excitement only heightened. And uh, yeah, sure enough. Now I'm here.
1: (laughs) Awesome. Lucky us. Can you tell us a little bit about your role here and the products that you've been working on?
0: Sure. I've been at QB for a bit over two years now uh, as a product designer, working across the whole spectrum of discovery, research, um, user testing, interviews, and uh, this conceptual design and visual design. Currently, I'm working on something that. Basically allows us to have our own sort of internal open source community to uh, share and scale our analytics knowledge and basically learn from all the work that we're doing so that we can do future work better at lower risk and uh, faster.
1: What problem are we trying to solve here for both both end users and also the organization?
0: So a lot of the work that our teams are creating on the projects manifests itself as code and... We are trying to make it easier for anyone in your organization to reuse uh, anything that's reusable from work that's been done before, you know to discover that that exists in the first place. Historically, that is something that we were able to do very well uh, just using a human process right In a smaller organization, anybody would roughly know what what any one of their colleagues has been working on. and if I have a problem that you know I'm working on at the moment that somebody else had before, I can go talk to them and, you know, let me take a look at maybe even some of the code uh, that they generated at a time that, you know, is uh, sanitized and reusable and uh, take ideas from that and, and use it on my project. But as our organization has been growing near exponentially, it feels like uh, that is no longer feasible. Um, and we are trying to prevent that information and knowledge exchange to from from drowning in those silos and still make it as as easy and um discoverable uh, to to kind of use these pieces of knowledge as the organization grows and uh, I think at this point that is thousands of analytics practitioners uh, so you can imagine what what kind of problem that that is
1: So what you're describing is the development of almost a a knowledge management solution for code within a growing organization. What do you think it is that's different about code from traditional knowledge? So knowledge that might have been caught in, say, PowerPoint or, you know, a traditional knowledge management system. What is it about code that makes you think differently about scaling that as a knowledge resource?
0: The examples that you just mentioned generally systems that document information about the work that's being done at an organization. But code itself is the actual work. And so maintaining a certain set of standards is very, very important. So what our uh, community allows us to do is if we make the solutions that we create uh, open to our colleagues, then they can undergo a very rigorous peer review process, making sure that using them or reusing them on another project doesn't introduce any more uh, risks, making sure that, you know, this is 100% sound and it does exactly what it's meant to do. A few other reasons, I guess, are that if you're looking at code that you didn't write yourself, it can be quite difficult to understand what it actually does and how it works. So that question of, Explaining what's actually going on here and how it can be reused and in which context, is very important. Yeah, on on the on the topic of context, you know, if you try to shift and lift uh, a piece of code from one application and use it in another, you know, that's been created in one specific context, and um, therefore it has to, you know, first be sanitized, and it has to be made sure that that can actually be done that this piece of knowledge is created in a way that it that it actually lends itself for that reusability
1: and i guess code isn't the only thing that's being created as part of uh, an ai solution are there are there other components or uh, deliverables that you're thinking about in terms of reusing as
0: knowledge yeah definitely and you know there are a few things that are specific to analytics and you know you can talk about Uh, hypotheses, you know, questions that fundamentally tie uh, business goals together with uh, machine learning model outputs. Uh, You can think about the models themselves um, or uh, any kind of like knowledge piece that might uh, come from a conference. Like I said before, some of the things that we want to share aren't necessarily pieces of code, uh, you know, that have been created on a project. It might be something that you know, somebody picked something up uh, on a conference, and they they developed a tutorial out of it to educate their colleagues. I think also beyond uh, those sorts of specific individual pieces of knowledge, what I find really exciting is by connecting these different pieces of knowledge together, and by drawing how they relate to each other, you can you can kind of start to see a bigger whole, and you can create sort of higher level entities that you might be able to reuse on a project or that you can use to uh, educate, you know, colleagues or, you know, use for for any means of any sort of other applications. And, um, you know, that goes to the level of, uh, say, our protocol, which describes how we do things. If we can underline those, you know, explanations of activities with the actual assets that are being created there and then allow you to reuse all of that, you can start to see how powerful that can be.
1: Definitely. So, what's the end goal here? How do we know whether we've been successful? Is it is it purely a case of accelerating future AI products and solutions, or or, or is there so some other goal that we're aiming for or aspiring to?
0: I think there are you know all kinds of different definitions to this, but personally, what I get really excited about is that thought that this is an industry that is constantly moving and advancing. You you can't just sort of Be complacent and sit still on your previous success. You constantly have to evolve, take on board, you know, the latest uh, best practices and research and see how that can make your work even more powerful. And I would love to see a, a future where we can, for the majority of our time, focus on those things and, you know, not redo anything that we've done in the past, but always be at the forefront of our industry and that being powered by, you know, almost not even having to think about all the things that, that we've done in the past because we've, we've captured that knowledge in a way that, the, you know, it's easily reusable and deployable again. And so we can 100% focus on, on whatever is new. And while advancing the industry as a whole, I think that's very exciting.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. We're codifying what's repeatable, but maximizing the time our teams have for innovation. For anyone that's interested in becoming a product designer, can you describe some of the activities that might preoccupy you during
0: any given week? So that depends on who I'm working with, um, because I think I'm still a bit of a generalist within design and I love doing everything from research all the way to visual design. Right now I work with Andrew Davies who is a brilliant visual designer and that means that I can spend a lot together a lot of time together with him uh on on those designs but I can also spend a lot more time on discovery together with my team and work out uh where the next piece of value is that we can unlock together and uh how we can do better on the things that we've already developed I might do some research in behavioral science as well how do you build a community around peer generated content for example what motivates people to contribute to such a system and uh, how do you think about getting recognition all of those kinds of questions and you know how should how should all of this information connect and you know there's there's a myriad of of sort of behavioral things that that go in here i don't think it's it's ever as simple as just like you know creating a feature that lets you do something and then people will magically do it, you you kind of have to understand people's motivations and I and like to really dig into that um, both in terms of secondary research but also with, with our users and colleagues. And I would then go and express any of my findings in say hand-sketched concepts or prototypes. That's also because it's a lot easier to discuss the vision of something if it's in front of you, even if it's not there yet or you know the particular type of implementation doesn't really work out but it's it's a great asset to talk over both with the users and and also stakeholders so I'll actually often produce things that look quite childish in appearance but that sort of omittance of detail is 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 really helpful in those early conversations And actually only then when, you know, user research aligns with, you know, what the product vision is and what stakeholders expect us to deliver, then we'll go to sort of higher fidelity uh, designs and prototypes, again, test them again, and uh, all the way through collaborating with all of my teammates. So, you know, consulting with with engineers on, you know, what the best implementation might be from their perspective, working with uh, Andy, like I mentioned, the visual designer, uh, on on you know the details of of a given implementation you know I'll I'll then take those things back again and you know do some user research on that yeah and once it's once it's been delivered you know we we see we look at the impact of of what's been created and if it's working and how well it is working and uh, and then it starts again it's it's a constant iterative cycle on the things that we've done already and at the same time always packing in some discovery on, on the great things that that we can do in the future that also pertains to the sort of actual visual design side of things, I think specific to the analytics content is that very much to sort of Quantum Black's tagline, you know, absorb complexity, transmit clarity, you know, with without trying to be corny, but that really pins it down really, really well. Uh, for me, that means that I get to reinvent how we look at new forms of data, um, works uh in in sort of an interface or you know same data in, in new contexts and um yeah that's that's really inspiring to me as well because i get to kind of reinvent or you know invent from scratch how certain types of information are, are displayed and how people interact with it and that's that's a great challenge um to look at
1: outside of your responsibilities developing these complex products i, I know you do other things within the organization. Can you talk a, a little bit about those things
0: and, and how you got involved in them? Yeah, a lot. Sometimes I think a little bit too much, <laughs> but it's 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 great to be able to do it. I mean, look, the way I think about this is that um, we exist in an incredible ecosystem here with with Quantum Black and also with McKinsey. There are so many different things going on, so many teams working on exciting stuff. And what that means is that if you have a particular area that you want to grow in or you know there's there's a specific industry that interests you or you know whatever it might be you'll be able to hunt down those opportunities and and get involved in them and and spend time on them yeah so you know for me specifically that meant that for example I'm really interested in uh, the sort of pro bono space um, or you know AI for good or analytics for good And uh, that meant that in the past, I've been able to uh, help out on uh, pro bono client engagements also have now become a a committee member of Quantum Black's pro bono committee, uh, which, you know, is is tasked with governing all all the pro bono work that we're doing uh, and and, and where that budget is going. So that is, that has been uh, very fulfilling for me to do. Can you tell us
1: about one of those projects? Can you tell us about one of the projects that you've done?
0: All right, sure. So last year, for example, we had a project with an NGO trying to combat uh, human trafficking, which is a problem that's not talked about a lot, but that's actually been growing. Um, And it's uh, as big a problem now as it never has before. And so we were looking at how to improve uh, or speed up the recovery uh, of victims of human trafficking. Uh, in a way that it would allow the NGO to make better decisions on what sort of help uh, those victims should receive. Another project I've been involved in was to detect damage to buildings after a natural disaster, where we identified that you know, in today's world, once once a disaster has struck, uh, you know, such as a, a weather catastrophe, for example. Uh, it can be very difficult to gather data on which areas are affected most. And sometimes it takes weeks or months to even get some numbers on where help is, is needed most. And so what we were looking at was how can we use uh, newly existing data streams to actually give decision makers an an accurate picture of, of that damage across a nation uh, within a day rather than a month.
1: Wow. And that that, that must be incredibly rewarding.
0: It really is. Yeah. I'm not ashamed to say that I'm very proud of that work. Yeah. Yeah, he should be.
1: Okay. So in terms of a a new product team, how do you set up a product designer for success? How do you ensure that you have an environment in a cross-discipline team that enables a product designer to bring their full capabilities to the fore?
0: That's a really good question. I think My first point is probably true for any discipline, but I would say just be really open to learning from them and open to relearning what you think design means. I think there's still a very strong preconception that design primarily concerns itself with the visual appearance of things, but it's actually much more than that. A designer can be a strategic partner Helping you to figure out which problems to solve, how to solve them, how to measure whether you've done a good job—all of those kinds of really important questions that will be on any one team member's mind—and they can lend a really strong new perspective to that that you might not have considered. So that that would be my first ask is to say, like, you know, actually get them involved in that conversation and of, you know, what what is it that you can help me with? What is it that you know where you think? You can add value to the project and, uh, not just kind of like, uh, have them, have them deliver on, uh, the vision that maybe the rest of the team, uh, came up with. I think the biggest difference in terms of mindsets that I've observed sometimes is that designers don't assume an end result ever. There is just a process, um, and that requires a degree of faith from everyone who's involved, um. And you can help your designers by giving them some faith, let them prove their that the process works, and then gradually up the stakes as as you're kind of becoming more and more comfortable with that again this is a this is a side effect of what I was talking about earlier in terms of trying to think about the the ideal solution and then looking at what's possible and there's you know there's all kinds of names for this this is a kind of like double diamond process that. The, of of design thinking that's that's very well established now, and so it really becomes a question of asking, how do you want to work? What does your process look like, and how can we make sure that as a team, our various approaches work well together um, in terms of you know delivering our work uh, in, in the way that we should in the time that we should? Because ultimately, that's what everybody should be caring about.
1: Yeah, I thought you were framing earlier around. Uh, the, the hammer and nail analogy was really interesting that one individual might have one perspective on how to solve a problem, but a second individual, regardless of discipline or background, might have a completely different perspective or framing for it.
0: That's exactly it.
1: So I I guess that's, this is empathy for one another's perspectives and views. It's not just design, it's for everyone.
0: Yeah. Awesome. And um, I'd, I'd have a third point to that as well, which is that there has been... <laughs> a very old and long conversation about uh what some refer to the return on investment of design, and what we are sadly not able to do today yet is to actually measure reliably the return of you know a a designer's investment. You know, if you staff a designer on a project for for this many hours, you can't really say how much more return you're going to get from that, but Experience and sort of cohort analysis tells us that design increases the value of any product and it can also lower a lot of strategic risks that you might experience. Making things pretty and neat uh, does work. It can increase adoption. It can reduce risk of misuse and much more. So especially in an analytics context where you get to handle very complex information and where correct decisions depend on understanding that information in in easy ways um, it can make a huge difference so don't underestimate the visual aspect of things i think uh, what what you're saying is really interesting
1: as a point though which is that sometimes there is a fascination with the code and with the the solution especially in in an ai space i.e the model or the data that's being ingested or outputted in terms of insight Uh, but ultimately that ai solution has end users and those end users don't really care what data may be underlying the the recommendations that they're being given so understanding their needs and, and their perspective is super important which i guess is Ironic thing is, we've spent a lot of time talking about how do you re- share and reuse code, but uh, I, I I think that empathy for for each other's roles and responsibilities is is clearly important. But also, understanding that there is an end user at play here, and that design can create a connection to those people, and to help you understand whether your solution is going to be successful, not just from a code or data perspective, but also from an end user perspective, is super important. Can you think of any examples just to bring that to life to to help explain? why that empathy for end users is important and, and and why design is so important to designing AI solutions?
0: Yeah, sure. So I'm just going to be making this up now, but imagine there uh, is a conversation between someone who's working at a bank and the customer who's requesting a loan. And the bank employee gets a recommendation from their system um, in terms of whether... That customer should receive a loan or how high that loan should be etc well that recommendation alone might be useful for for the employee but if that customer calls and complains um, what are they going to say you know these are very important decisions in any person's life and if a customer calls and says you know why has this, this decision been made just saying oh because the machine told me to isn't isn't gonna be good enough, right? So there you can immediately see some, some very human needs in terms of, well, that employee needs to be able to, first of all, build trust um, with that system and be sure that that information is accurate. And they need to be able to get some kind of explanation in terms of what has led to to this recommendation and have the means to contest that, to introduce their own uh, long-term expertise to weigh all of those things up and then give a human response to their customer. If they're not doing that, that customer is gone and they're never going to see him again.
1: For anyone that's interested in the discipline of product design, what resources would you point them towards? What should they look at to help them understand whether this is a profession they might be interested in getting into?
0: So I've personally always found the sort of human resources most useful. So what I mean by that is, um, you know, if that is something that you're thinking about uh, as a new career path, you know, go to hackathons, go to workshops, actually do it. uh, And do it with others as well. I think some people start off with their own sort of test exercises and projects at home, you know, in isolation. And that's fine, you know, to learn some of the tools and to, to get some baseline understanding. But fundamentally, design is a collaborative discipline. And so I think if you really want to get a flavor of what it's like, um you gotta you gotta put yourself in those collaborative environments and take part in, in some of those sessions and exercises. In terms of reading, um there are a few good books. Uh How to Make Sense of Any Mess by Every Covert is something I keep pulling off my shelf. Um Laws of Simplicity, John Mater emotional design but by, by don norman and and everything that austin cleon has ever put out uh, who's a writer of creativity who i absolutely love but i am also hugely into podcasts and there is a few that i listen to uh, design better podcasts by envision is a great one uh, or how i built this by guy Raz. Um, but i also have my own uh, where i try to make product development and and design a, more accessible for um, anyone who's interested in that topic. It's called product nuggets and you can listen to it on any platform. So a little shameless plug there, um, but not shameless at
1: all. I've listened to it. It's great. Go check it out. (laughs) Thanks, James. All right. Thanks, Tom. So last question. What mindsets do you think are important for a team and stakeholders to adopt in an organization to create a successful product building environment?
0: That's a great question. I think to me, my my pet peeve that I always have is a little bit about metrics. I love metrics and I get very hung up in terms of formulating them uh, as well, uh, for better or for worse. And, you know, I think that having certain goals and metrics in place that are tied to uh, outcomes that you want to achieve as an organization and that you can then use to, you know, set sort of more granular goals for for your product is really, really important. I think too often there is this notion of an assumed mutual understanding of what everybody's trying to achieve, but when you're really doing the work and try to express that big complicated vision in a few words with some numbers attached to it, uh, that can generate so much clarity, so much alignment. And it can really set up a team for success if, if they're knowing what they have to optimize for. Uh, another thing would be the sort of mindset of experimentation. I think with within limits, obviously, but I consider everything that our team is creating an experiment. Uh, that means not being precious about work, um, being humble, knowing that you might not get it right the first time, just Working towards uh, what allows you to learn and improve in the quickest possible way. Sometimes that might be, you know, building a feature and and actually deploying it, and sometimes it might be drawing an ugly paper sketch and putting it in front of a few people. Um, but I think the priority really is on on learning, on experimentation, and growing as a as a team and you know the product uh, as a result. And the last thing I'd say is creating an inclusive environment. I think there is sometimes an assumption that you know having an environment that is open enough to let everyone speak, if they so choose, uh, is enough. But I, I don't think that's true. Letting everyone speak is not the same as making everyone heard. And if you do that, you'll find that people get much more involved, they take a lot more ownership, and suddenly you'll have an environment where, you know, people feel personally responsible for the, for the success team. And you get to this uh, concept of, you know, we've been talking about sort of empowered product teams versus delivery teams, you know, having everybody really bought in and pulling in the right direction. Yeah, I think, I think something as simple as, you know, asking somebody else to express their opinion rather than waiting for them to do it um, can, can really make a huge difference there. That's amazing advice.
1: Thank you very much for sharing all of this with us, Tom. Thank
0: you, James. It's been great talking to you.
1: You've been listening to a podcast created by Quantum Black, a McKinsey company. This episode was produced by Tilman Becker and Catherine Shenton and edited by Clementine Retig and myself, James Mulligan. If you'd like to learn more about Quantum Black, head to www.quantumblack.com.